Hey, what's going on, church family? Great to be with you today. <clears throat> hey, so some of us who grew up in uh, going to children's, as a part of children's ministry or children's church, at some point you probably did something like this, where you took your hands, some of you online, maybe you can see this, and you would do this. This is the church. This is the steeple. Open the door, and there are all the people, right? Now, you got to be careful when you do it because you want to make sure you intertwine, interweave your fingers because you don't want to go, this is the church, this is the steeple, open the door, and there are no people, right? You want the eight-member church people, all right? The, the eight members who all get along, they don't complain about anything, they all like the same songs, that's the church you want. I got a buddy, uh, he pastors a church in Kansas City, Randy Frazee, and Randy had a son who was born without a left hand. And his son was in children's church. And the woman who was coordinating children's church that day led them through the exercise of everybody put your hands together and this is the church, this is the steeple, open the door and there are all the people. And as she was doing it, she remembered, oh my goodness, I have a kid in here who doesn't have a left hand. So she was going to go and like put her hand with, her, with his, but when she looked over, one of his best friends, they had been friends since birth, he had taken his left hand and put it in the other kid's right hand, and together they did the whole exercise. This is the church, this is the steeple, open the door, and there are all the people. And the minister to the teacher to that day, and hopefully it was a lesson to the kids that day, that the church is the church when, we are, when we're a part of this family together, not just by ourselves. I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28 today. And part of this is we're going to talk about the beloved community and what Jesus does with this community of faith, how he commissions them. We're in a series right now that's going to last throughout this entire year. I've broken it up into seven different series. And for the first six weeks of 2024, we're going to talk about how the Gospels end. Today we're going to be in Matthew like we were last week. We're going to talk about purpose and worth and, and mission. Every gospel ends with Jesus doing something to commission people, whether it's giving them the Holy Spirit, reigniting their faith, commissioning them. And I hope to, that this serves in a way to give you a sense of worth and purpose and mission. Uh, I sent a churchwide email earlier this week with a couple of documents to help you work through the Gospels in your own life, maybe a few challenges for you. I also laid out the sermon flow. And if you are not a member, but you're with us every week and you would like those documents, either drop a comment in our comment section on Facebook this morning or feel free to reach out to me or the office. I'll make sure you get those documents. All right, so maybe you're in Matthew 28, but in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, all right, you can go there. If not, if not it's up on the screen. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, here, here's what happens. Jesus, who had just put together the 12 apostles in Matthew chapter 9, it says, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and every sickness. So Jesus took the 12, commissioned the 12 way back in Matthew chapter 10. Then there are three years, around three years of Jesus' public ministry. In those three years of Jesus' public ministry, I wonder if he ever regretted putting together the 12 or trusting the 12. Do you think there was ever a night where Jesus thought to himself, did I do the right thing? Did I pick the right people? One of them would betray him to death. All 12 would betray and reject him in moments when he needed them the most. 
Yet after three years of public ministry where he saw the failure in these men, the gospel ends in chapter 28 with what we know is the Great Commission where Jesus looks at the 12, uh, at 11 in that moment. And if you go to, to the next slide of Matthew 28, and we talked about this last week in verses 18 through 20, it's the Great Commission where Jesus says, therefore, go into all the world. Right? You make disciples of all nations, baptize them, teach them. So Jesus gives them the commission. So if you look at the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, where Jesus commissions them, he gives them mission, he gives them assignment. And if you're not super familiar with your Bible, but you see those three verses of how Jesus sends them out on mission, you would think that right before that, there was a moment when the apostles, when these disciples, when they displayed for Jesus that they are confident and they are bold and they are courageous and they are ready and they are full of faith. So give us something to do. And then Jesus gives them the Great Commission. But in verse 17, right before the Great Commission... What happens is this. It's seven words in the Greek, three lines in your English Bible. And it's this. They looked at Jesus, they worshiped Jesus, and some doubted. And in the moment, it kind of catches you by surprise because Jesus is alive. And most of us, when we think about the Great Commission, we don't think that the right before the Great Commission is given, it talks about how some of them, they have doubts about faith or doubts about Jesus or doubts about how all this has happened. The verse before it doesn't display like all this confidence and bravery and boldness and we're ready and we're full of faith and we have every answer to every question, so send us out on mission. It's they look at Jesus, they worship Jesus, and some of them doubt it. So what I want to talk about some today is when it comes to purpose and worth in life, like sometimes we carry our doubts with us. And what I'm going to try to teach you today is it's okay. Because doubts aren't a sign of weakness. Doubts can go along with faith. Uh, so I'm going to ask you just a show of hands. And I know this always scares people because it's like, oh, what's he going to ask? What sin am I going to have to confess? Is my, is my spouse, my kids, are they going to be upset if I'm honest in this moment? But if you have ever had a doubt about prayer in your life, will you just raise your hand? If you've ever doubted faith in your life, will you just raise your hand? Is that, is that me or is that another mic that's on? That's me. Yep. If you are here today <clears throat> and you have doubts and you thought you were the only one, having seen what just happened in the room, you're not alone. Now, follow me here, okay? Because there are some jobs in life. In order for you to have that job, you have to pass, you have to, you have to get certain certificates, you have to pass tests. In order for you to have certain jobs, there are things you have to pass in order to have the identity or the title, the responsibility or the assignment. So the last hurdle in becoming a licensed attorney is the bar exam. And though most of us in this room haven't taken it, most of us probably know somebody who did. Last year, there were 65,000 people who took the bar exam. And out of those 65,000 people who took it, only 59% of people passed it. It's offered twice a year in February, July. The people who took it in February, only 45% of the people passed it. The ones who took it in July, 64% of them passed it, which may tell you that smart people take big tests in the summer, not in the coldest, darkest month of the year, right? Or maybe it should tell us no matter where you are in school, no one should have to take tests in February because we're not at our best. 
Now, I, I may surprise you, I've never taken the bar exam, but I'm pretty sure at the very end, like to pass, or maybe for extra points, like you have to come up with your jingle because every commercial we see about attorneys has a jingle with it. I'm pretty sure that's when easy for Montezzi, easy with Montezzi, when, when it all came about, right? Or maybe some of you in Memphis, you could help me out. NST is the way to go, call. <laughs> I wondered this morning, I was like, is anybody going to know this? And now people online who don't live in Memphis are like, what did they just do, right? If you want to be a licensed attorney, you got to pass a test. If you want to practice medicine, become a doctor, you have to take the MCAT. Now, the MCAT's not so much pass-fail. It's kind of like an a ACT or SAT where, I mean, you, you take the MCAT and then you're ranked with other people and then you just kind of wait and see. Are you accepted into a medical school? Last year, 165,000 people took the MCAT. Only 41% of them were accepted into a medical school. But it shows you a lot of people didn't pass the MCAT. But you probably never want to sit down with a surgeon who says, uh, I didn't pass it, but they let me in anyway because they said I have a good personality. You probably don't want it. You want to practice medicine? You got to pass a test. And most of us in the profession we're in, and even the profession I'm in, like for me to have this job, there were, I mean, certain things they wanted. Somebody who had an undergraduate degree, a master's degree, experience. Like there are tests that you take in order to become the person in the job that you do and what you are. But Christianity is different. Discipleship is different. Because you do not become a disciple of Jesus because you pass a test. You become a disciple of Jesus because Jesus passed a test. You're given an identity and then you're asked to live into the identity. So when it comes to becoming a Christian or when it comes to becoming a disciple of Jesus, it's not that we study and cram and take a test and then wait to see what the results are of the test. It's you were given an identity, and with that identity, there is an expectation from God, and the expectation is that you're in, with your new identity that you will pursue the heart of God for the rest of your life. So Jesus meets you where you are, but he refuses to leave you where he found you. All right, so here's, why I, here's what I've tried to do in the last few minutes, of, okay? Is that when it comes to you becoming a Christian, it is not about you getting to this place of certainty about every matter of the Christian faith. It's not about you becoming, in order for you to become a disciple, you have to have all the answers to every question people may have about faith. Is that as you become a disciple of Jesus, there are going to be some doubts that you may carry for the rest of your life. But in and through the doubts, you're going to choose to believe anyway. You're going to keep clinging to the story even, even when it's hard. And the best place for you to doubt is in the beloved community. It's, it's in the church. Now, I was raised the first 19 years of my life, and I don't know if I received this teaching from everyone else, but I just thought if you have doubt, you, you have weak faith. You need to get rid of them so that you can believe in everything. But the, the older I become, the more I'm like, hey, there are going to be doubts we carry in life, but I admire people and look up to people who have doubts, yet they choose to believe anyway. Toward the end of Dr. King's life, there were more and more doubts he had. There were doubts about the movement, there were doubts about reconciliation, doubts about faith. Yet he was on the record multiple times saying things like this. 
that the movement he was a part of was to awaken a sense of shame within the oppressor and challenge his false sense of superiority. But the end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. That is what he believed in, was a beloved community of people who come together from all walks of life with those things we have strong convictions in and the questions that we still carry in life. So I guess my question when it comes to the Great Commission is this. Based on chapter 28, verse 17, are the apostles ready for what happens in 28, 18? Like based on what you see in 28, 17, in that moment, should Jesus go ahead and commission them? Because they're worshiping, but there are some doubts that are there. So I want to go through 28, 17 line by line for you real quick and spend most of my time on the third one. Here it is. The first thing you see is that they look at Jesus. They look at it. The one they had been searching for their entire life. The one that their parents had taught them to look for. The one that, they, as they partook in the Passover every year and thought and prayed about the Messiah, now they see him with their eyes. They look at him. The second thing is they worship Jesus. Only two times do you have the apostles worshiping Jesus in the gospel, in Matthew. Now, Matthew has worship scenes more than anybody else. In Matthew chapter 2, Jesus is worshipped as a baby. And you have these moments when people uh, were healed from leprosy and they, they worship Jesus. And this definition, if you go to this next uh, slide, the, the, this word worship, it's to express an attitude or gesture one's complete dependence on or surrender to a high authority figure. So there are moments when people like fall at Jesus' feet, which is this word for worship, that maybe they aren't recognizing him as the son of God, as God in flesh, but they do recognize him as this great prophet, this mighty authoritative figure. But when the apostles worship Jesus, Jesus in Matthew 14 and in Matthew chapter 28 verse 17 I think they recognize this is Messiah this is son of God this is God in flesh they worshiped him and some doubted now there's some who like make a distinction between the two so what they do as they translate the Greek is they say some worship and some doubted because there are some people that just can't hold the fact that there are worshipers in the presence of Jesus in which some of those worshipers had some doubts but I think as you look at it all of them are worshiping Jesus and, and some of them were doubting there was uncertainty now, this word doubt that you see in Matthew 28, 17, it only shows up two times in the New Testament, and both of them are in Matthew. I want you to follow me on this, all right? The first time this word, distazo, shows up in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 14, verse 31. This is where Jesus had just calmed the storm. And Jesus says, why do you doubt? The second time it's used is in Matthew chapter 28, verse 17. Both times the word is used, it also has the apostles worshiping Jesus. So in Matthew 14, 31, you see distazo when Jesus says, why do you doubt? In Matthew chapter 14, verse 33, the apostles worship Jesus. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 17, you have this moment of some doubted, but in that same verse it tells you they were worshiping Jesus. You can worship Jesus and still have doubts. In your doubts, you can still come into the presence of Jesus and acknowledge him as the one who is above everything. 
I want just to toss out a few things about this, this uh, how doubt uh, functions in the Bible. Most people, when they think about doubt, they may go to James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, where it talks about how dub- doubting is like being double-minded. It's not the same word that is used in Matthew. And it's only a word that shows up a few times in the New Testament. But here in Matthew 28, verse 17, the fact that they saw and worshipped Jesus indicates faith. And they believed that he rose, and they believed he was glorious, yet there's some confusion, and I think one of the best ways for you to think about this word doubt in Matthew 28 and 17, there's hesitancy. They did not doubt it was Jesus, but they were in a state of uncertainty in life. And Matthew understood the fluctuation between worship to Jesus and hesitancy to act. And apparently... The doubting or the hesitancy didn't phase Jesus because he didn't speak about it. He didn't separate those some some who doubted. He didn't separate them from the worshipers and then just commission those who were worshiping with no doubts. It doesn't seem to phase him at all. It wasn't a failure. It wasn't seen as weak faith. It's almost mentioned by Matthew as just a reality of life. And what ends up happening to those 11, even those who were doubting, is you look at Acts chapter 1. They're in a room where they join in a prayer campaign praying for the Holy Spirit to come. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they witnessed and they testified. Some of the greatest witnesses to the faithfulness of Jesus in the world today comes from people who carry their doubts, yet they keep believing in Jesus anyway. They hold their doubts. Yet they keep clinging to the story. So I want you to look, if you go to that next slide, or that, that one right there, sorry. Uh, that when they saw him, they worshipped him and some doubted. And let me flip this. Either for you or a moment in your life when you may be with somebody who expresses doubt and may be a way for you to talk to them about doubt. Because if you read it in reverse, it's like this. Like in your doubts... Like keep showing up in worship to Christ and keep looking at Jesus, even in your doubts. Like even as you carry some of the doubts in your life, keep worshiping Jesus, even if it's hard. And in the doubts that you carry in life, keep looking for Jesus. Don't stop looking. Don't turn your eyes. Keep looking for Christ. I've uh, mentioned it before, the most impactful author uh, in my life has been Philip Yancey. I've read every book that he's, he's written in the last 30 years. And Philip Yancey writes a lot about doubt. I mean, titles of his book are Disappointment with God, and What Good is God, and, and Where is God When It Hurts. Like, just listen to the titles of his books. But he's, he processes faith and doubt and keeps choosing faith and doesn't feel like he has to put this real nice bow on the end of every book. He leaves it a little messy, but paints Jesus as this figure in life that you just cannot say no to. When Philip Yancey was writing his book, Disappointment with God, he was in an airport. This was back in the mid-90s, so everybody in the airport, they didn't have their phones out or devices or laptops. You actually had to sit next to people and maybe hope they didn't talk to you. 
And he was in a, as an introvert, he was there sitting next to this woman and wasn't engaging in conversations, but the flight was delayed for five hours. So she began asking him what he does in life. He began sharing some of the books and then he was processing with her the content from his book, Disappointment with God, in which she was so intrigued to hear somebody talk about faith in a way that left room for doubt. But at the very end of the conversation, she said, Philip, can I ask you a question? And he said, sure. And she said, do you ever just let God love you? In which him, he was on this like, uh, uh, this adventure of trying to reconcile things in his mind. And it was con a conviction in his life that he needed to develop some practices in which he could be in the presence of God just, just to be loved by God in the moment. Now, I reread that story the first week of my sabbatical, and for me, it wasn't like the doubts in my life, and I need to be reminded to let God love me. It was a pace of life I developed sometimes of just running from one place to another place, or always it's about results or creating things, and I needed to be reminded to be in the presence of God and just let God love me. But maybe some of you who sometimes, like, faith for you is this intellectual exercise or wondering is doubts okay in your faith maybe what you need to know today is there need to be moments in your life you just let God love you in Jude it's only one chapter so it's not like you, you don't say Jude chapter 1 it's just one chapter but in verse 22 of Jude it says this have mercy on those who doubt or in some of your versions it's be kind to those who are wavering Jude verse 22 be merciful and kind to those who have doubts a woman named Lauren Winter, I heard her speak a little over a decade ago. And she had a memoir, and in that memoir, she tells the story of a friend of hers who was about to be confirmed, a confirmation. None of, some of us may not have been raised in churches or parts of the Christian faith where the word confirmation is used, but her friend was in the process of uh, being ordained in, in ministry. But the day before her friend was about to be ordained, her friend had some serious questions about whether she wanted to go through with it because she had some doubts about her faith or doubts about the Bible, and she didn't know if she could go through with this kind of confirmation with those doubts that she had. And her dad, her dad said this to her. Her dad said, what you promise when you are confirmed is not that you will believe this forever. What you promise when you are confirmed is that this is the story you will wrestle with forever. I said, I'm, I'm in this, and I'm going to stay in this, and I may wrestle with God, and I may wrestle with faith, and I may have big questions, but I'm going to believe anyway. You will never hear me say from this stage that your doubts aren't welcomed here, or that doubts are a sign of weak faith, or that you need to get rid of your doubts and just increase your faith in God. What you will hear me say are things like this. Learn to carry your doubts in a way that keeps you in places of worship. Carry your doubts in a way that keeps your eyes still searching and looking for Jesus. And know that your doubts are not too big for God. And as risky as it sounds, and as true as I hope this is, your doubts are not too big for this church. So when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And in verse, chapter 28, verse 18, if you'll go back just a couple of these slides, what you see is the very next line is Jesus approached them. 
That's the very next line you see after it says some of them doubted, is that Jesus approached them. Jesus approached people who had doubts, but their doubts were wrapped in worship and adoration of Jesus. And Jesus didn't distance himself from those who doubted. He took a step and he approached those who doubted, yet they had their eyes focused on Christ. So if you go to that very last slide on the screen, this is going to remain up for just a moment. Because I would love for this to play out in your prayer life and in your heart as we go to the table today. Uh, And we have six tables set up. And right now we try to honor the many different ways that we like to go to the table. For some people, it is a moment that you want with God and we wanna give you space to do that. You can take the bread and the cup and you can reflect on Jesus. For some, this is a communal moment. And every Sunday, there are a couple of like groups who will, who will huddle up and they will take bread and cup in community. And for some, the movement to a table reminds them of their movement in life, that we move for each other. We move for the sake of the mission of God. This, it's all, no matter how we do it, it's all about Jesus. And as we come to the table today, I just want you to think, hey, we look at Jesus. In the moment we worship Jesus, feel free to bring your doubts to this moment with Jesus. And know that in this moment, Jesus approaches us. He steps. He comes. He takes a step to you and for you. And this morning, if there is a place of prayer that you need, Rachel Galbraith or, uh, and uh, Lee Vernice Anderson, or Lee Vernice, uh... <laughs> yeah, sorry, I just did your wedding or half of it. <laughs> Lee Vernice will be here uh, to receive you for prayer. We'll have two elders in the front and the back. I'll be up here to my left. Can we bow our heads and close our eyes? God, you are good. For those wrestling, God, may they feel your grace as they wrestle. May they know that you are near. Jesus, in all the emotions we bring to this table, give us an awareness of how you approach us today. That you are not giving us a stiff arm. You're not rejecting us. You're not separating us from those who seem to have authentic, genuine, uh, passionate faith in you. So approach us. Keep our eyes focused on you. And Jesus, in this moment, as we give you thanks for the bread and the cup and the story that has changed everything in our lives and in this world, will you have your way with us? It's through Christ we pray. Amen.